I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Acts. We'll finish our chapter today in the second chapter of Acts. And I want us to think about um, some times in our life where we um, we have an idealist's perspective on someone or something. So I'll give you an example. When... Uh, a person is starting to fall in love with another person in those early days. They have what you would call an, an, a certain kind of idealism about the person, right? Uh, she has no flaws. Or even if someone did have a glaring flaw, you would say something like this, well, the fact that they have a flaw is a good thing in my life. It's a place that will help me grow, Right? That's just what people say when they're confused, okay? But there's that sort of early love idealism that is present. Things start that way. In the early days, you know, um, I remember we had a small group uh, when we lived, my wife and I lived in Georgia, we had this small group and it was great. It was great. It was everything you'd ever want of a small group. And I've since come to realize that's because we were the only ones with kids. Like everybody else, I mean, you could just, in our infants, you just, you know, tuck them in the corner. But then when your kids are older, then you're like on a time schedule. And at 8 o'clock, you're, you're turning into a pumpkin. And the realism sort of interferes with the idealism. There are, we have a book in our bathroom called Awkward Family Photos. And uh, I have a few of them here for you. This is all, these are all from the Awkward Family Photo website. The reason I'm saying this to you is because family photos try to portray this sort of idealism also. You try to, you know, no, well, I won't say nobody wants to do a family photo. They're, she wants to do a family photo, <laughs> right? And most of the he's don't. But they force you to line up and then you conjure up your fake smile while you forget how, like, how do I really smile? You actually forget because you're so sad you can't actually really smile. So you're trying to recollect when I was happy, what did the smile look like? And you're trying to do this thing and, and the sun's in your face. And the, the funny, interesting thing about a family photo is despite all of that torture of the moment, the artificiality of the moment, you're actually trying to capture the real love and joy that you have to convey so that one day you can look back on it with fondness. I mean, it's interesting. It's artificial in the moment, but it's, it's realer when you look back on it. Here's a couple just to loosen us up. I can't mention awkward family photos without giving you a few. See, the chicken is the problem here. <laughs> At least the chicken. It's the least of... So this next one I really like. I think she was confined to quarters. Um, I love that one. I love it. This next one is called The Hulk. And let's see if you can find it. You see his shirt? This big blue shirt with the Hulk. He's not smiling. So this last one is a little hard to make out, but this gets to the point, okay? Okay. Um, 
Now, you can't see their faces, but I studied it, and I'm fairly certain that there's not a single person in that picture smiling. They're frowning, they're frustrated, they're complaining, or they're problem-solving, right? They're parenting. They're telling someone they better smile or they're going to get a spanking. There's like this, it's just, in order to look happy, they're sad. (laughs) Family photos. Why do we do them? We do them because we want to create an ideal moment that we can look back on. We, we, We want to be able to sort of one year, many years from now, decades from now, open up an album or look on the wall or uh, be reminded on your laptop that, uh, and I mean this for real, like those were good days. And you see the kids and they're all small. And you don't remember, the mind has this way of just washing away the grittiness. And it's just, I'm so grateful that that's the way our hearts sometimes lean is towards the ideal. And it doesn't matter that that picture is not really what that day looked like. I mean, that day, even that moment was way more frustrating than it looks. We know it was an artificial moment, but it's talking about something that's real and it's really talking about it. And today, that's what we're going to see today. We're going to come across a picture in the scriptures of the church. It's a word picture. It's a mind picture, but it's a description of the church, and it really is an ideal picture. Whether Luke was uh, led to write it this way, and sort of in that fond reflection of the time, or whether it was caught up in the early days of how it felt in the early days of the church, I don't know exactly, but God has given us a picture that is an accurate picture of what God's church should really look like, and it's before us. And even here, we should not be fooled to think that this church was day in and day out this good. Because we know that you turn a few pages and you're in the book of 1 Corinthians, or you're in the book of Romans, or you're in the book of Hebrews, or you're in the book of Galatians, troubled churches, or churches that are real with various sorts of strengths and troubles. This description is being written when we know that the church was as normal as it is today. But this is like a family photo. This is what it would look like on its best day. So let's go ahead and look at the scripture here. I'll give you a a little bit of summary. The whole second chapter of Acts is the day of Pentecost. It's describing what happened on this particular day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish holiday, but on this particular holy day, the Holy Spirit came into the lives of the apostles in power That resulted in them preaching the gospel powerfully, which pierced the hearts of the listeners and caused great conversion. So on on this Pentecost, 3,000 souls were added to the number. That's what it says in verse 41. And this act that we see, this is why the book is called Acts, is because it's looking at various acts. And this act unmistakably, we should see as an act of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the apostles. And the Holy Spirit softened people's hearts. And that's why there's this great turnout. So what we're going to look at next are the verses that immediately follow, which is what it looks like when the Holy Spirit is filled within the church. When when a church is full of the Holy Spirit and uh, I, want us, I want us to see this. So 
let's just look at verse 42. Uh, real quickly, I think of 42 as like a header. It's going to, in a few words, describe what, everything that's going to follow. It says this about these new converts, this new assembly in Jerusalem that will one day be called Christians. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. It's kind of a simple sentence, but it describes it pretty well. That's church. Devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And then 43 and on is going to flesh that out. But before we go there, I just want to describe that I believe that 42 is as much an act of the Holy Spirit as 41 was. In fact, this is once again one of these times when I don't like the fact that there's a title that gets in the way of the reading. Let me just read to you 41 into 42 so you feel how naturally they connect. So verse 41, it says, So those who received the word were baptized, and there were added to that uh, that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer. It's the natural consequence of the Spirit drawing people to Himself is they're drawn to Him together. So what does a church that is full of the Holy Spirit look like? Let me, let me read. I'm going to read 43 through 47, and then we'll sort of come back and itemize them. But here's the general, the general read. Now, you're going to hear some idealism in it, okay? It's going to be the best day, the best day of the church. And the idealism is going to show up with the use of superlative statements, like all, everyone, all the time. I just want you to receive it as sort of God's gift of this is the perfect church. Okay? And awe came upon every soul. This is verse 43. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. What a great snapshot. What a great picture. So I'd like to walk down these verses and just uncover what exactly is the nature of the ideal church. For example, look at 43. Here's the first thing that's said. That awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. Now this is a, this is a little bit particular because, or difficult even for us to process because we don't see wonders and signs being done by the apostles or by the pastors or by the ushers. We just don't see wonders and signs being done in the same way today. So this one might take a little bit more time to unpack because it's important to know what's the reason for these wonders and signs. And if you note, the reason's sort of put in front of us. Awe came upon every soul. The Signs and wonders were not being done to fill empty stomachs. Actually, we find out later that that was done by people selling what they had. It was done 
I don't want to say it was done any more naturally. It was, done, it was part of the being full of the Spirit, but it wasn't done miraculously. Here, sign and wonders are done through the apostles, and awe comes upon every soul. It wasn't to heal people. It wasn't to do anything like that. God was putting awe, putting into his people an awe-filled respect for the teaching of the apostles by backing them up with signs and wonders. And we see this way with God all through the Bible. All through the Bible he does this. When he wants to speak, and speak in a way that's going to come out of Scripture, when he wants to speak in a way that's going to form a covenant or a way or a book of the Bible or the words of a prophet, he will often accompany those words with signs and wonders so that it would validate among the people, this is real. We really have to pay attention to this. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to start us off in Exodus chapter 11. In Exodus 11, Moses is in the court of Pharaoh right before the 10th plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn son. So nine plagues or trials have hit Egypt by this point. Okay, The 10th and final plague is in the 11th chapter of Exodus. At least it's discussed here. But I want you to notice what, what it says here. It says, Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. Why do you think that is? Yeah, nine, the nine previous signs and wonders. God is a set on making it clear to everyone that Moses is God's man. And when God says it, or excuse me, when Moses says it, it's as if God says it. In fact, he says almost exactly that. He says, your words will be as though I have spoken. So that nobody in Egypt, most of all the Egyptians, would doubt that Yahweh is Moses' God. Signs and wonders behind Moses. It happens again, and it happens many times with Moses, so I actually had to delete examples out for time. But Exodus 34 is another really good example. This is the second time Moses comes down the mountain with the second set of Ten Commandments because the first had been destroyed. And as he's coming down the mountain and the people see him, they see that his face is radiant. It's glowing. It's illuminating with the glory of God. Moses doesn't even know it. Why did God do that? What well, says? It says that at the very end, the skin of his face shone and they were all afraid to come near him. Awe and fear. Moses is God's man. Whether it's an Egyptian or an Israelite, Moses is God's man. So when Moses writes down the law, which he's coming down the mountain with, by the way, when Moses comes down and begins to continue to write the law out and the rest of the Torah out, it's, he's doing it when he comes out of the tent. He has to put a veil in front of his face because his presence is so disturbing to the camp. Awe falls on the camp as Moses writes the words of God. Joshua chapter 1, the Lord says something that's similar to Joshua. He says to Joshua, Moses is dead, but be of good courage, be strong and courageous, and don't worry because I will be with you. 
and I'll go with you. Then everywhere that your foot lands will be yours because I'm with you. Just be strong and courageous. Again, once again, it's encouragement to someone else who's now leading God's people to to put behind them the unmistakable evidence that God is on their side. When the Israelites asked for a king, they went to Samuel and they said, give us a king. And when the Lord finally did give them a king, he, the first king he selected was one just like them. His name was Saul. And Saul was anointed by Samuel to be king. And then this is what happened. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 10. It says that the Holy Spirit of God rushed into him. That's Saul. And he began to prophesy. Now, why is that? The people around Saul went, wait a second, that's Saul of Benjamin. Is he a prophet now? This is God's way of saying, this is my man. This one is, I didn't put up because it's self-explanatory. The same thing happens, by the way, with the next king, King David. Samuel finds finds the boy David, the shepherd boy David, anoints him to be the next king. And you know what 1 Samuel 17, the next chapter, talks about? David slaying Goliath. There's times when God's at work where he uses signs and wonders, like you might say on the frontier of his divine action, where he's cutting new territory and he's taking over and light is pushing into darkness. There's times in those places where his people, they need to be validated by him so that the word can take root. You find this right now, you wonder, why aren't there signs and wonders happening in the church today? Well, they are happening in the church. They happen often in the frontier of of the faith where the kingdom is trying to take root in dark places. You go there and you do not find missionaries who are unfamiliar with the signs and wonders of God. You find missionaries who at times in their life have relied on it, where God has come behind them to cement their presence among a new people. And so that's what you have here. Right up front, you have God, a spirit-filled church is one that is full of awe for the words of the apostles. We believe it's true and that God is in it. A sign in a good, healthy church would be a leadership that carries the burden of the teaching of the word as though it was true. And a fellowship that attends to the word with care as though it was true. This is a sign of a, an ideal sign of a healthy church. And it gives birth to something else. Look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, that's saying two different things. They are, one, together, and two, they have all things in common. It's one thing to be together. It's another thing to have all things in common. Together means we like each other. Like, hey, let's get together. But all things in common means we think similarly We approach, it's not we all had all things in common like you and I drive the same car or that we're wearing the same socks. It's not a possession sort of word. It's an identity sort of word that you and I have a lot of commonality. It shows us that a spirit-filled church, it's more than simply right teaching. It's way more than coming to hear a word and leaving with that word. It's the Holy Spirit's doing something more. In the coming and hearing the word, and the teaching of the apostles, the Spirit is changing you. 
to be more like those who are attending to the word. You're having day by day, you're progressively having more in common with a new group of people who are singularly gathered around the word with awe than you used to be out there. Some of you know this. Some of you who came to Christ a little later in life, you can attest to this. And I would challenge you to attest to this with your friends where you've come to the Lord and you know, you know, you've changed a lot and then you go back to your high school 25th reunion and you're hanging out with your friends and it's just not like it used to be. You know, and you'll, you'll go home and your husband or wife will ask you, what? And you say, I just don't know. I just don't feel like I have anything in common with them anymore. I feel like they're still stuck. I guess I'm different. You are. In the teaching of the word, they were together and they had all things in common. It, it's, it's the definitional example of community. It's, a, it's unity with commonality. We, in the teaching of the word, are being conformed to his worldview. And that's happening in an environment of affection, right? We're coming together. We like being with one another. That's a sign of an ideal church. To not experience this begs the question as to whether you have a, whether you or the fellowship approaches the Word of God with any awe or respect at all. Now, you can say you like the Word of God. It hasn't anything to do with liking the Word of God or being really interested in certain topics of God. This is not about making Scripture your hobby or even being rigorously obedient to it. This is being filled with awe and respect that God has chosen to reveal himself to you. And it's hard to imagine that happening and community not coming from it. Something else happens. 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So they didn't just get together and they didn't simply get along. Something else happens. They begin to prioritize the health of their community over their own comfort. Just think about that. They begin to prioritize a need that someone else in their fellowship has over the value of the comfort they once enjoyed. Right? What you see here is people giving of their excess freely and willfully distributing their comfortable excess so that the whole fellowship might be able to say adequate. That's what you do with a family. In fact, the best image I can think that's in my mind is the image of a mom. I just, I, my, the way I was so well mothered and, and the great moms around me, I just see moms better than anybody do this, where they give and give and give of what, if they were ever to say what was rightfully theirs, but they give so that others, they prioritize the needs of others in the giving away of their comforts. 
It's because it's family. It's what's behind the word nurture. You could say that right here. You could say they didn't simply get together and hang out. They nurtured one another. Because there was a natural, natural thing in your spirit which was caught by the need of someone else. A bothersome catch. That would say that they would, it's more important that they, their situation is rectified than that my situation remains comfortable. Awe-filled respect for the truthfulness of the teaching begets the commonality and the unity of the fellowship which begets generosity and charity. That's how it happens. One other verse, verse 46, and just the first part of it here. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking their breads in their homes. And I want to stop there because I think this describes the dimensions by which this happened. How often did this happen? Often, day by day. All the time. Variously. Here and there. Frequently. And what's the scale that it happened? Well, it happened in all sorts of places. Sometimes in the temple courts, sometimes at homes. I mean, you... It's going from the most public to the most private. There's a sense on, well, what's the exact nature of this? You would say, well, even if we could describe the attributes of this community by bowing to the truthfulness of Scripture with awe and respect, uh, a sense of belonging and conforming, a shared values, uh, that their mind is being repaired to have a divine sense of how the life should be and they're doing that together and beneath that is this sense of nurturing that is naturally surfacing because of the power of the Holy Spirit we if you were to cut that no matter how you would cut it you'd find it it happens all the time and it happens everywhere it's really really sweet now, all of what I just said sits on one side of the equal sign, okay? If this was a math problem, this would be one side. This is everything that goes into what's about to happen. So on this side, you have bowing with awe to Scripture, which begets community, which begets this nurturing love, which happens frequently and in many places. And if you put an equal sign here, the rest of 46 and 47 tell you what it produces. Look at what it produces. So... I'm going to read 46 again. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, equal sign, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So all of this results in joy and in life and fullness and love. And more than that, it's attractive. It's naturally, it's easy evangelism. Your life is full and satisfied and others want it. It's the best kind of evangelism. Everybody wins. Your life is full and rich in the Lord and that's attractive. So that people are saying, what is it about you? I remember who you used to be. But you've long since conformed. You have everything in common with a new group of people. It's a very fruitful picture. 
And I would say this is a picture of the Spirit-filled church, the ideal picture of the Spirit-filled church. And I'm inclined to think, by the way, that the observation of, of this, this, there's a certain sense, a certain order to the sequence. There's a logic to the sequence. I mean, everybody wants joy and fulfillment in life. Everybody wants that. Even people that are not religious want to have a full life full of joy. Everybody wants that. How do you get it? I think, actually, the previous verses have a careful sequence. You can't just say, well, give of what you have in excess so that others have need. People are going to go, well, why would I give it to them? They don't deserve it. That's not how you have your full life. I mean, you just sort of watch the American attitude with white knuckles bared on. Well, this is mine. I earned it. I did this. Well, that's not what happens here. That's not the recipe for a full church. Follow the sequence. The recipe for a full life in the church, you might say, just follow backwards, is born out of the charity and generosity that comes from a nurturing heart, which didn't be born out of itself. That was born out of a fellowship that was genuinely connected with one another. They belonged to one another and they, they viewed the world the same way. They had things in common with one another. And that didn't just happen. That wasn't born overnight. That was born from an awe-filled respect for the teaching of Scripture. And you can see so many iterations of communities and of houses of worship that try to get the full life on the right side of the equal sign. They try to get that without... But, while at the same time forfeiting an awe-filled respect for the Scripture. They want to just, can't we just be a unified community? We'll put it in our name. We'll be a Unitarian community. We'll be universalist. And everyone will come. But that by itself is not producible by mankind. It's a work of the Spirit, which comes from an awe-filled respect for the truth of God. I'll give you an example. Back in Joshua 1, and on the top of the line is the passage that showed up earlier in Joshua 1. But I want you, these are the verses that immediately follow. So the Lord is saying to Joshua, I want you to be strong and courageous. Everywhere you go, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to give you, if your foot touches the ground, that's your ground, Joshua. You're going to be successful in whatever you do because I'm with you. I'll always be with you, so be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Do you hear that? Be strong and courageous to obey the word. In fact, when you finish reading that, the first time that I was encountered by this, I was struck dumb practically because I always thought that God just wanted me to be strong and courageous, just be a strong person and a courageous person. And then I realized in my deeper study of this, that if I'm going to be strong and courageous anywhere, it's the strength and courage to be obedient to the Word of God. And that, by that, everything else will flow. Only be strong and courageous. Remember to observe. Don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left. Do what I commanded you to do. Be strong there, and I'll be with you. Unity, love, Charity, nurturing, fruitfulness, life, all of those things come from a fountain whose headwaters is an all-filled respect for what God has said. 
Okay. So let's leave Acts 2 for a second and come to now with either this church in mind or if you're visiting your church in mind or the church you came from in mind, just pick a church. I would just say this. What do we do with this teaching in light of a lesser picture? I mean, this was the ideal. Even Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem wasn't really this good all the time. I mean, the book of Hebrews is going to, which I imagine was written to Jewish Christians, is going to have a lot to say about how much the writer wishes they were actually mature. So, this ideal family photo, what do we do with the realness of life? What do we do with a lesser picture? I mean, a common observation, when somebody's studying Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, it's not uncommon for them to say or think something like this. Well, we don't look like that. What do you do when the observed reality of church or your experience of church is something less than what you read here? How do you react to that? One way to react, because there's several, one way to react would be to reject the lesser experience as illegitimate, to say it's illegitimate. No, look, at this is what church should be like in Acts chapter 2. We're not doing this, we're not doing that, we're not doing the other thing, so this must be an illegitimate expression of church. That's one way to react, is to delegitimize the lesser. Here's another way to react, <clears throat> would be to make uh, the ideal irrelevant. So to say, well, that was a long time ago. Well, you know, that was then and this is now, or that really is not there for our instruction, it's just a story, or ah, who, we really don't know where that came from. Right? You could, re- you could reject, on one hand, the the lesser as illegitimate, or you could reject the ideal as irrelevant. Or you could do this third way, which obviously you know A and B are bad. Don't do those. Right? Or you could do this. You could act towards the church in exactly the same way God has acted towards you, which is to embrace both of them with greater love. To look at the lesser, and rather than making it, rather than rejecting it because it's illegitimate in your mind, remind yourself that Jesus Christ did not reject you because you were illegitimate, because you were. Who here has a legitimate claim to the king? No. He didn't say, well, this is a lesser version. I made man in the garden without any sin. I, Adam, when I set him up, there was no, look at this defunct, broken, deformed, derivative. It's illegitimate. Did he do that? No. He poured his life. His very spirit has taken up residence in your, this illegitimate tent of mine. Right? He's chosen to love it. And he, and he didn't do the other thing. He didn't say, well, I'm going to love you and reject the ideal. He said, I'm going to take up residence in you because I love you and push you towards the ideal. Like, I'm not going to reject the ideal so that you feel lovable. 
despite the fact that you're not love worthy, I'm going to love you and take you there. It's a greater love in both ways. It's not an either or. He's loving you and he's saying, and this is how you should be. Now come with me. This is how we should be. When we come across a lesser version of the church, which by the way, in this day and age, in every day and age, everywhere is always a lesser version of the ideal. We can't start a good, perfect one. We can't preserve a perfect one. We can love an imperfect one and love the ideal. And good things will happen. I'll close with this last, these last thoughts. These are just some practical thoughts for you. What are you supposed to do? How am I supposed to think in light of this when I stare at what I would guess you might call problems in the church or evidences of its lesserness, when I stare at its inadequacies what am I supposed to do? And I, this is what I would ask, I think is the best path. I would encourage you to think with yourself and or your family in mind. So what I mean by that is rather than expressing the thought in your mind with, with, in the phrase of why don't they do this, okay, we rather to approach it with what about my worldview prohibits me or interferes with me pursuing the ideal? Because you and I both know that the standing worldview of our time is at odds with a lot of what we just read. A lot of what we just read. The standard run-of-the-mill worldview that exists, that predominantly exists, you know, Monday through Saturday from 8 a.m. to 10.30 p.m. on what you watch and view and talk about and adhere to, that generic worldview that's sort of alive in which we're being boiled, it's at odds with a lot of what was described. Daily they met in the temple courts. Just take that one for a second. Daily. Should I say now? Well, I'll see you tomorrow. You can say, well, that's not possible. Well, sure, it's possible. Absolutely, it's possible. It's just other worldviews at work. I mean, it's summer. We could have settled for monthly they met together. So when we start here, what I think would be very helpful is in light of the ideal, rather than saying, why don't they do it? Why doesn't that church do it that way to say, actually say, what about the ideal pushes against my worldview? My family's worldview. This is how God does everything. He, he comes in souls. And then over time, we have all things in common. So what is it? Ask yourself and your family, do you have in the walls of your home, is there an awe-filled respect for the word of God, the truth of God? <clears throat> I don't mean, is the Bible on the top shelf? Or do you have a fancy Bible? I mean, Look at your children. They're a perfect litmus. Without them knowing, would you just assess them and say, they would, they would say that the word of God is true and that we should follow it. Is there, is there a sense of respect for what God says? In your life or in your family's life, what community, you can ask, what community have I chosen for myself and my family? When we talk about they were together frequently, and had things in common. Well, what community are you frequently together with or what community do you have many things in common with? 
Just sincerely ask those questions. Just let God into those questions. Allow honesty to rise up. You might be very encouraged. What are my family's unspoken beliefs about our priorities, our possessions, and our privacy? What rule, what algorithm runs the week? What spaces on the calendar do everything else, does everything else revolve around? I think God's on his way to building his ideal church. You and I may not be here to see it, but one day I'll see it. And one day you'll see it. Right? We'll be in his house, his house, and everything will be right. But until then, inviting the question in, right? Loving, loving one and leaning towards the other and asking the question about ourselves. I think there's fruit in that.